Well, good morning, Grace Church of the Valley. It's good to see you on a holiday weekend. As a pastor of many years in Birmingham, Alabama, the holidays were always an interesting journey for the local church, and I'm glad you're here today, and I'm honored to be a part of uh, your ministry again so quickly. I had the privilege of being at the River of Life ministry on Friday night with many of your young people, and uh, Andy and Becky hosted us there on the river, and uh, that's just a a wonderful venue. Shay invited me back uh, about a month ago, and we had a good time, and we're thankful for the opportunity to engage in ministry, and then your pastor, Scott, called me and said, hey, you're coming up, would you mind staying uh, as I'm recovering with my uh, throat and voice, and so I'm honored to be here today and grateful to minister God's word to you. I enjoy, my wife and I had the privilege of being with you a month ago, and we surely enjoyed the spirit, the camaraderie, the community, the Christ-centered focus of this church, and I'm hopeful that I can be an encouragement to you today from God's word. I'd like you to take your Bible and join me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. My subject today is making a life-changing impact. This is a holiday weekend. This is a week where in a few days we will celebrate the independence of our country. We will reflect on the freedoms we enjoy and the life that we share because of the investment and leadership of those who have gone before us. And obviously, from our vantage point, our country's changing. We are not the same America that we were. We are changing rapidly, quickly, and we're in need of leadership and influence. The church and its influence is diminishing. There is a rate of uh, really transition in the church today of astonishing and significant concern as it relates to the people who are aged between 18 and 24. The rate of leaving the church today in that age bracket is higher than it's ever been. Eight out of ten will leave and not come back. And we're in need of a commitment to do what God ordains and prescribes that we do to be the agent of influence that we should be. The church is called to be salt and light. What America is, in part, is a reflection of what we are or are not. We are not impotent or powerless. The gates of hell will not prevail against the forward march of the kingdom of God, Jesus promised his disciples. Christ in the world and Christ reflected through the power of his presence in his people is a formidable force of influence. I'm glad we read Genesis 1 today. God made everything for good and for his glory. There was nothing that he made that he called not good. He called it very good. But chapter 3 records that that good and glorious creation was damaged, broken, damaged by evil and by choice. The influence of the enemy, the choice of the woman and the man, And the injury to all of humanity passed on generationally. We have all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. All of us infected by the consequence of the fall. But God in His infinite love 
sent his only son to rescue and to redeem. To be for us what we couldn't be on our own. To do for us what we couldn't do on our own. To provide a righteousness that we don't earn or deserve or merit, but to be gifted with a righteousness, not our own, when we confess that we're broken and sinful and rebellious. And we invite Jesus Christ to be our substitute by faith and to gift us with life eternal, justification, a big big biblical word, to make us as right as Jesus is right, to make us more than innocent, more than guilt-free, but as righteous as he is righteous, a gift given to us by faith alone, one of the solas. It is amazing grace. It is in Christ, and it is the consequence of that is the potential for a restoration and a rescue that transforms us, making us new creation, restoring what was broken inwardly and by God's Spirit, enabling us to become what we ought to be outwardly. But that's not all. The reality of the biblical message is not only are we saved by grace, we are commissioned by grace. We are sent as those rescued by God to be agents of influence. We are sent out to bring a message of healing and to bring restoration to a broken world. We're a preservative. We are a promoter of life and hope and help. We are the agents of influence that are meant to bring life to a fallen world. We are commissioned by God. And the greatest greatest benefit and the greatest achievement that you will ever secure, having been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, is to be an influential agent that brings that healing gospel and that healing provision of grace into the lives of people that matter the most in regard to the things that matter the most. My message today is an effort to help you be what God wants you to be, both as a perhaps parent, grandparent, as a church in this community, to be an agent of influence to make a life-changing impact with regard to the people you have relationship with. Maximum impact, maximum influence among the people that matter the most to you, matter the most to God in the things that matter the most, to leave a legacy. I want to call you to invest your life intentionally, collectively, as families in this community to invest your life and not spend it. I've been a pastor a long, long time. I've had the privilege and honor of doing dozens and maybe hundreds of funerals. I have never been at a funeral that I have had the privilege of officiating where someone stood up in that eulogy time where they speak a good word about the person that we're memorializing. I've never had one stand up and say, I just want to reflect on Bob. 
I'm amazed by his ability to secure wealth and to achieve a high level of prestige in the culture. It's an amazing thing that Bob did by way of achieving notoriety in the culture or developing and growing a large business. Or Mary and the book that she wrote and just the way she became famous through the capacities that she was endowed with. I never heard anybody applaud anyone for their achievement in the securing of things, fame, fortune, and stuff. But without exception, what people say when they stand up to speak is, I want to thank God for the influence that Bob or Mary had in my life. The legacy that they left. The impact that they had. I am what I am in part because of who they were and how they lived. Listen to me, at the end of your life, however long your life is, seek to carve your name, not on monuments or buildings of stone, carve your name into the hearts of people. That's priceless. And today I want to give you a paradigm, a pathway, a priority, priorities to pursue in order to maximize your influence. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. The reason we're there is because the Thessalonian church, which Paul visited probably in late summer of A.D. 43, populated 100, a population 100,000, a seat of government for the Roman Empire in that region of the world, Macedonia. Paul visited. Seven years later, he writes from Corinth this letter. Gathering from the content of this letter, you would have to say out of all the churches that are referenced and represented in the New Testament, this may be the only church that if it were graded, it would be given an A. Corinth wouldn't be given an A. Philippi wouldn't be given an A. Ephesus wouldn't be given an A, but Thessalonica would be given an A. Because there was no church that heard the measure of affirmation in terms of what they had become greater than this church. And to highlight that, let me just give you a few inspired reflections as Paul writes this letter before I read our text this morning. Look at what he says about the Thessalonian church. He says in verse 6, chapter 1, You became imitators of us and the Lord. You received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia, that's northern Greece, and Achaia, which is southern Greece, where Corinth was. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth. Now watch this phrase. Look at the end of verse 8. So that we have no need to say anything. Your life is so mature and so developed and so impacted with the ways of Christ. You're a you're a teachable receiver of the Word of God. You're a noble imitator of our example and of the Lord's. You're a missional proclaimer. Everybody in the known region has heard the good news about you. You've trumpeted the gospel. 
so that there's no need for me to say anything. Now listen, I don't know about you, but there's very few places in ministry influence, whether it's at home or at the church, where you could look at a people, group of people or anyone that you're seeking to influence for the cause and glory of Christ, where you would say, I don't have anything else to say. You've heard it, you've received it, you're living it, I don't have anything else to say. Can you imagine saying that to your child? I've downloaded it, you've got it, you're doing it, nothing else to say. Wouldn't you like to be able to say that? Amen? Yes? I'm an interactive pastor, so help me when I ask. Listen, Paul said, you're imitators, you're proclaimers. Your worshipers, look at verse 9, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned from, to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son. So they're hopeful anticipators and they're transformed worshipers and they're missional proclaimers and they're noble imitators and they're teachable receivers of the word of God. And I've got nothing else to say. You could look at the end of verse, chapter 2, the end of that chapter, verse 19. Listen to what Paul says of this church. For who is our hope, referring to them, for who is our hope or joy or crown of exultation? In other words, what's going to bring joy in the future? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and our joy. Do you know what he just said? Someday in the presence of Christ, when he returns, you are going to be the basis of joy. The trophy of my life and ministry. Because you lived what you lived. You became what you became. It's like 3 John which says, I have no greater joy than to know that my children walk in the truth. And Paul says, I'll have no greater joy than when I arrive in heaven or when he returns and I see the people I sought to influence in the truth. Look over at chapter 4. Where Paul continues verse 1, chapter 4. And I'm just talking about who this church is and the product of a life of influence. Finally then, brethren, verse 1, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God. Now look at the parenthetical. Just as you actually do walk, that you may excel still more. Which is to say, what I told you in the authority of Christ, you're actually doing. The only thing I'm asking is you do more of it. You excel and advance in it. But as it relates to what you've been taught, you're doing it. So here's the question. What did Paul do to produce that kind of consequence? As it relates to a human agent of influence, commissioned by God, to invest his life into people he loved. What was the paradigm? What was the pattern? What were the principles? What are the principles that you ought to pattern your influence life after if you're going to be an agent that produces in the life of those with whom you have to do, the people that matter the most, 
What are the principles that help them secure maturity in the things that matter the most? What do you do? If you're a parent, what path do you follow? What paradigm do you pursue? If I could tell you today, listen, I'll guarantee you that if you employ these precepts, this pattern, and these priorities, you will mark your child for the cause of Christ. These are the critical ingredients that make a life-changing impact. Wouldn't you want to know what they were? And Paul says, hey, let me tell you what I did to influence this church in a way that left a legacy that I'm reporting about for your benefit today. So that's the setup. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, our text for today. What are the priorities to pursue as an agent of influence to make a life-changing impact, to promote the glory of God in the life of your family and in the life of those with whom you have to do. Maximum impact. Follow with me. This is the text. We're going to go a little quickly today because of our time. I want to highlight for you the the summary of the core commitments that govern everything and then the priority pursuits that will enable your life to impact the lives of those that matter the most and the things that matter the most. Verse 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is Paul saying, This is what I did to some you-make-me-proud disciples to influence you. Verse 1, for you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. And we just saw it. No, it wasn't a waste. It wasn't empty. It was powerful. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation, what we said did not come from error or impurity impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we had been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having thus fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor, our hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. So that, look at verse 12, the last verse. I did all of these things. I did them motivated by these priorities so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is God's word. It is a perfect paradigm to be an agent of influence that maximizes impact. 
with the people that matter the most and the things that matter the most so that they'll be honoring to God and someday honoring for you and blessed and benefited because of your life and its influence on them. Let me give you the primary priorities to pursue. And before we look specifically at verses 10 to 12, I want to give you some big overarching highlights. Core commitments. All of the priorities to pursue are governed by these core convictions. In other words, the things that you do to impact the life of someone else for the glory of Christ, whether it's in your family or outside of your family, are governed by these core commitments. What you do is done out of the context of these convictions. Number one, you do these discipleship things, these influence priorities, courageously. Number two, you do these things purely Number three, you do these things relationally. Number four, you do these things consistently. And number five, you do these things dependently. What the Word of God is going to ask you to do, what Paul is modeling for you to do, is to be done, number one, courageously. Paul says in verse 2, we suffered We had been mistreated in Philippi, just as you know. We had boldness to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Now, if you go back to the book of Acts, that meant they were threatened with stoning. They were beaten with rods. In other words, the truth they were telling, the gospel they were proclaiming, was not received in every case with positive response. Yet despite that opposition... Amid much opposition, he said, I courageously continued to speak the gospel. Here's a big idea for you. When you're seeking to promote Christ in the life of another individual, in or outside of your home, it will not always be received well. Sometimes it'll be received with much opposition. Paul said, I was courageous. I didn't shrink back. I didn't become passive. I didn't become quiet. I'm not saying hostile. I'm not saying out of place and out of time. I'm saying having having a courageous conviction that says, I'm on the planet as a parent, grandparent, or an agent of influence in the world in which I live to advance the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I will speak it properly and timely as motivated by the Spirit of God with opportunities that He creates, divine appointments, if you will, and I won't shrink back. If you're going to be an agent of influence, you're going to have to be courageous. Number two, you're going to have to do it purely. Motives matter. Motives matter. Watch what Paul says. He said, "Our verse 3, our exhortation, what we said did not come from error, or impurity, or by way of deceit. In other words, it was pure, both in its content and its motive. He goes on to say, we were entrusted, verse 4, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, now watch this, verse 4, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God. He's the one who examines our hearts. Which is to say, what I say first and foremost, is not for them, it's for Him. 
I'm speaking out of a motive to honor him, to fulfill my calling by him. This is about him before it's about them. That matters. Otherwise, you begin to say things to get them to like you. You're trying to influence them for them or for you, which is why he goes on to say, verse 5, we never came with flattering speech, which is to say we didn't tell you things that made you feel good so you would make us feel good. We didn't come with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. We didn't want what you had. We didn't want your elevation or your appreciation. We didn't want your things. God is a witness, verse 6, nor did we seek glory from men. We didn't do this so you would elevate us. We didn't do this so you would give things to us. We didn't do this so you would like us. You know, we did this for him, not you, and we did this for you, not us, not me, not for what I could get out of it. Let me just pause for a minute. Motives matter. If you're a parent, you're a grandparent, there's, your, your motives can become affected by the importance of how your child or how your grandchild performs and behaves. You want them to be what you want them to be for the reasons you want them to be that. And it can often be the case that those motives can drive your influence instead of the motive to say, you know what, I'm a worshiper of God called to be an influence to my child. I can't save them. I can't transform them, but I can influence them. And I'm doing that for God, not for me, not so others will applaud me as a parent, not so that someone will call me valuable and wise as a leader and an influence. I'm investing for their sake and for his sake, not for what they give, but for what they can receive that honors the Lord. Motives matter. You can get in Christian cultures, it's not hard to create a performance mentality. Christianity is not performance. Christianity is heart and soul relationship. Whatever performance comes as a consequence of who I am and the relationship I enjoy. Not so that someone will like me. Not so that you'll think highly of me. Not so that someone will applaud me or give things to me. This is for him and it's for them. It's free. And it's not about me. If you understand, would you say amen? Motives matter. Purely. Not just courageously. Thirdly, relationally. I want you to see at the end of verse 6 where Paul makes an interesting turn as it relates to his description that he says they know related to his ministry and influence. Verse 6 reads this way, Nor did we seek glory from men either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, now watch this, even though we had a position, office, and station, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. Now notice the first word in verse 7, but, which is an adversative conjunction, which means on the other hand. We could have asserted our positional authority, but instead, look at what verse 7 says. We prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly caring for her own children. Verse 11, just as you know how we were exhorting, encouraging, and imploring each one of you as a father would his own child. Here's the third big idea. That drives the priorities you pursue. This is to be done first and foremostly relationally. 
The force, listen to this, the force of positional authority is not as impactful as relational ministry. Or Paul would have used it. He would have asserted his authority. Now listen, I'm not saying that it wouldn't have been valuable for him to say, hey, I'm an apostle, I have authority, do it. Sometimes as a parent or an authority, grandparent, you say, I'm the authority, do it. Just recognize the force of positional authority is not as impactful as relational ministry. A nursing mother and exhorting father are heart and soul the centerpiece of relationship. Paul says, I chose the relational path, not because I didn't have a valuable alternative as an authority appointed by Christ, but because relational ministry is the most impactful ministry. The argument is he wouldn't have done it if it wasn't. Fourthly, consistently. I want you to notice the verb at the beginning of verse 7. But we proved to be. Now, that's the New American Standards. Most of your Bibles will probably say we were. It's called a collective historical aorist in the Greek language. Aorist means it happened. That word proved or were. Aorist means it happened sometime in the past. Historical means we're going to look at the past and we're going to collect historical snapshots. We're going to put all that collection of snapshot events, time after time, taking photographs, and we're going to collect them into an album. And then we're going to entitle that picture album of real-life collective events historically, and we're going to give a title to it which is to say, I proved to be this way. You feel that emphasis from the very beginning, verse 1, you yourselves know. Verse 2, as you know. Verse 5, as you know. Verse 7, we proved to be. Verse 9, for you recall. Verse 10, you are witnesses. Verse 11, just as you know. Verse 5 of chapter 1, we proved to be this way among you. You know what kind of men we were. All of which is to say, big idea. Paul wasn't just this way once in a while. He was consistently this way. So much so that he didn't have to defend it. They knew it. If you're going to be an agent of influence, it's not just doing it courageously, purely, and relationally. It's doing it consistently. Not spasms of influence and spirituality, but a consistent life of influence in the priorities that matter. And then fifthly, dependently. Dependently, because without me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. This is not a prescription that you, 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 you actually apply in your own power and humanity. I have these convictions. I'm going to do these things. I'm going to practice this formula, and it's going to result in this outcome. That would be faulty thinking because without me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. Which is why Paul said in verse 5 of chapter 1, our gospel did not come to you in the word only or in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You knew what kind of men we proved to be among you. In other words, we were spirit empowered. We had passion and conviction borne by the presence of the Spirit of God and the power of His presence in our life. 
Listen, if you're going to be an agent of influence, it'll be because the Spirit of God is influencing those you care about through you. These are the core conditions that facilitate the impact of these priorities that I encourage you to pursue. So let's look at the things that you do. The core, the, the life-changing ingredients. Not the core conditions, but the, the life-changing ingredients. Number one, what do you do to be an agent of influence governed by those conditions? Number one, pray for them. If you want to influence somebody, pray for them. Pray for them constantly. Look at verse 3. Paul said he made mention of them in his prayers, constantly bearing in mind not just their work but their need. Colossians 4 verse 2, devote yourself to prayer. Philippians chapter 1 verse 4, Paul said, I always offered prayer for you. Whenever you came to mind, I prayed for you. Here's a big idea that should be a given but is often overlooked. Constant daily prayer by name for the people we seek to be an influence for. Let me give you a way to pray. I use something called the bless acrostic. It's not original with me. Somebody taught it to me. It's been helpful to me. How do you pray for somebody you want to influence? Number one, you pray this way. B, their body. Bless them by praying for their health and strength. L, for their labor or their work, if they're a student, for their academics. Pray that they'll be fruitful and prosperous, that they'll make good success in the things they are focused on doing. E, pray for their emotional health. Pray for their emotional stability. Number four, pray for their social relationships, their friends, their family. Relationships have such an influence on the way people receive and advance and grow. Physical distractions, emotional distractions, work distractions can be great challenges to spiritual advance. And then finally, the last S of bless is pray for their spiritual health and life. If I were you and I wanted to influence somebody for the cause of Christ, I'd call their name every day and I would bless them by praying for them in those core categories. Number two, the second ingredient, be with them. Be with them presently and physically. Be with them. Here's a hidden gem in this passage. Verse 7, watch what it says. We prove to be gentle. Now notice the words among you. En meso, in the middle of you. That flavor is over at the end of verse 5, chapter 1. We prove to be among you for your sake. This is an interesting little phrase. It means to be in the middle of and engaged with. I'm present with you. I'm physically present and I'm engaged with you. You might want to write down Luke chapter 2 verse 46. You feel that nuance when Jesus, you'll remember this, his parents came to town for the feast. They stayed for the uh, ordained number of days. They left town. They were some distance from town. They began to look for Jesus, their 12-year-old son. He wasn't with the relatives. He wasn't in the caravan. They had to return to Jerusalem. They searched three days. Do you remember where they found him? Found him in the temple. And the scripture says in Luke 2:46, using this same phrase, they found Jesus sitting in the midst of the teachers. And then this parenthetical, this description, listening 
and asking questions of them. Which is to say, he was in the middle, he was engaged, he was hearing, and he was asking. He was communicating. He was present physically, and he was engaged relationally. The number two ingredient, Paul says is I was in the middle of you. I didn't invite you to my office. I didn't invite you to my tent. It wasn't just at my place of business. I came to where you were. I was engaged in your space and in your life. If you're a parent, get engaged in the life of your child. Head up, eyes open. Walk into the bedroom, sit down on the bed, have a conversation, look at what's going on, put the cell phone down, shut the electronics off, and engage. Be present, be physically engaging, listening, asking questions in the midst of their world. Go to where they are. Be proactive, be intentional. Now listen, I'm a parent. I have two children. I know that it's not always a gimme to get in their space. But there is a way to do that. There's a, there's a commitment to that, to walk in, to sit down, to engage, to look around. What's going on? What are you thinking? How's it going? Engage them. Be present, physically and presently. You'll be surprised at how many young people say that the average young person, really way above average, says the single biggest thing they desire for them from their parents is more time. I want time with my dad. I want engagement time. Now, you may not feel that for whatever reason, but that's what's being said by those who take surveys to that effect. Spend time with them. Be with them physically and presently and may so. Be present, not absent. You can be home and not be home. Sometimes you come home at the end of a long day and you're just, you're just decompressing. Find a way to engage. Number three, care for them gently. Pray for them constantly. Bless, be with them physically and presently and care for them gently. Notice what Paul says in verse 7. I cared for you, I proved to be gentle. Apius, it means to be kind. Kind with words, kind with non-words. You know, 60% of communication is non-verbal. The way you look, the way you are, the softness of your countenance, that's gentle. And then he gives this vivid graphic illustration, like a nursing mother. Is there anything more gentle than that? There's no expectation from the baby. There's no frustration because of the failure to fulfill the function of a nursing child. This is a mother nursing her own child. Not a surrogate, not somebody else's child. There could be nothing more personal, nothing more tender, nothing more kind than that. Paul said, I proved to be over and over again not harsh, not positionally authoritative, but gentle, kind. And then that last word in this passage, caring, tenderly caring, has the idea with warming them, embracing them. It's a safe zone. Listen, as a parent, as an influencer, it can get frustrating 
We can lose our way with our children. We can lose our way with those in our world who keep doing the same things over and over again. Paul said, my pattern was to be gentle, not harsh. When children don't do what they're supposed to do, the tendency is to raise the level of intensity. Strengthen the words, strengthen the volume of the words, furrow your brow, do what it takes to get their attention. Paul said, that's not what I did. I was gentle. I was soft. I was kind like a nursing mother. Remember this proverb, Proverbs 25, verse verse 15. A gentle tongue can break a bone. A gentle tongue can break a bone. You don't have to be loud to be influential. Be soft. Just as a word of encouragement, look, that doesn't come natural to any of us in our humanity. People frustrate us. I want to give you just a couple of things to remember. Number one, remember to do your own personal devotions before you engage someone else. Make sure you're spiritual, otherwise you'll function carnal. Spiritual means you take time daily for God alone. Spiritual means you're governed by the Spirit of God. Spiritual means you have patience, not your own. You have a gentleness that's not natural. You have a quality and a character that is a consequence of your own relationship with God. Number, number one, be spiritual. Number two, remember they're a child or remember that they're a human being. Treat them with dignity. Treat them with respect. Know my children are not my equal in age or station, but they're my equal in my humanity. They have position. The kingdom of God is filled with such as these. Suffer the little ones to come unto me. Don't treat them with disregard. Treat them with high regard. You mislead them, it would be better for, your, for you to be cast into the sea with a millstone tied around your neck. They have value. Treat them with value. Deal with them with dignity. And then thirdly, deal with them early. <laughs> You're going to be gentle. You've got to deal with them early before the frustration gets high, before you lose your way. Deal with them early. If stuff happens, deal with it. I tell parents all the time, and those of you that are parents and grandparents, deal with it quickly and do with it, deal with it when it's clear. Deal with it clearly. It needs to be a clear thing. If it's muddy, if they're not sure, if it's, it's, you're not sure the motive or they're not sure the motive, wait, you'll have an opportunity to deal with a black and white issue. When you do, deal with it quickly, deal with it consistently. Be an agent of influence and do it gently. Number four, the fourth ingredient. What did Paul do? He prayed for them constantly. He was with them physically and presently. He cared for them gently. And number four, he loved them passionately. He loved them passionately. Interesting statements, verse 8. Having thus fond affection for you. The only time in the New Testament this word is used it is a very powerful word, it is extra biblically. It is used of parents yearning for children they've lost to death. It has to do with a yearning passion of the heart that would desire connection and relationship. You might write it down as pursuing passion. This is the passion that I have that's deeply felt, and I won't quit until I find you, till I engage with you. I care about you. This is the love that is more than words. This is the love you can feel. It drives me. 
Have you ever lost a child? I don't mean to death. I mean lost them like they weren't where they're supposed to be and nobody can find them. Ever have that experience? I have twice. Lost both my children. Lost my daughter at the age of two. Got up on a Sunday morning to go to church to preach. I got ready. I was leaving. My wife came down to say to me these words, Harry, where's Wendy? Our two-year-old daughter who sleeps upstairs at the same level we do. I said, honey, I don't know where Wendy is. She should be in her bedroom. She's not in her bedroom. She's nowhere in the house. And Lucy, our Labrador, is not here either. And the door was ajar. Well, it doesn't take long to calculate the options. And the option you have to calculate typically is going to conclude with this. Daughters with the dog. The dog's headed out behind our home where there was a large creek and a swampy area. Labs like water. So the imagery conclusion I had is Lucy took Wendy to the water. Now, as a parent dressed for church, what do you think this parent did in order to find the daughter he had lost? I went upstairs, changed, put my waders on, and went out back. No, that would not be the right answer. What this parent did, dressed something like this, is went through the backyard, over the chain link fence, into the creek, along the edges, and walked it looking for a little girl for fear that I had lost her. Do you know what that is? That's this word. It's the passion that says, I will find you because I care, yearning deep within me care for you. Now, thankfully, after 15 or 20 minutes of heart-wrenching, and if you've experienced this as a parent, you know this feeling. Man, there's a pit in your stomach, and you just can't believe it's happening. And a neighbor called and said, hey, do you have a little girl and a black dog? She's sitting on the swing on our porch, rocking away. Is she yours? Now, that's one of the world's greatest feelings. And there she was. Now, I tell you that not to say that I'm different than you are, but to give you a flavor of a word that otherwise you wouldn't know. And that is affection that is so deep, so rich, so powerful that it drives you to pursue the people you want to influence. Having thus fond affection for you. What did he do? Fifthly. He shared with them spiritually and personally. By the way, what time is it? My uh, clock died. So that could be an excuse, but it's really true. It's electronic. What time do we have? It's 11.50. 53? So I need to hurry. Will Will you wave at me when I'm two minutes till? Thank you. I did bring it. It's just not saying anything to me. Verse 9, or verse 8, this driving affection, this yearning passion, we were well pleased, which means we took delight in. We wanted to do this. It also has a nuance of we were determined to do this. And he goes on to say we were well pleased, driven by this affection to impart. Metadidomy, it means to share something with you which, which is personal to me. And what does he share? The gospel of God, not only that, but also our own suke, our own soul, our own life. Now, two things. Agents of influence share the gospel, the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for them. 
If you're a parent and influencer, the greatest power you possess in part is to share your own testimony with the people you want to influence. Sometimes we reduce the gospel to a little formula. Share the gospel out of the context of your life and testimony. This is what the gospel did for me. It wasn't me being a good person. It was a great God reaching a not-so-good person who was broken and couldn't help themselves. Here's my storyline. God invaded my life by His grace. I repented. I received a gift that I didn't earn or deserve, and it changed me. I'm not perfect, but I'm different. Share the gospel out of the context of your own life. And Paul said, I don't only just share the gospel, I shared my own life, my soul as well, which is to say it was real, it was personal, it wasn't religious, it wasn't just a way of life, it is my life. And no, it's not perfect, and everything I do is not right. Sometimes I fail, sometimes I stumble. Be honest, be real, share your own life. Listen, God is real. Christianity is a relationship with the living God. Second generation Christians see first generation Christians come to faith. They see the reality. But third generation Christians often see a way of life, not a reality. And you can go through the church motions and learn the songs and go to the camps and do everything and not get the reality of Christianity. I'm in a Christian institution. I've been the pastor of a church with a Christian school. I've seen it over and over as children get farther removed from the obvious transformational power of the gospel. It becomes a way of life, not life. Let them see the reality of Christ because you share that reality, both the gospel you've received and the way the God of heaven affects your life today. All right. I know I'm close. Sweat for them sacrificially, verse 9. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship. Labor is suffering, or labor is toil and sweat, rather, and hardship is suffering. Paul said, I suffered. I paid the price for the ministry you received. Sacrifice sacrificially, sweat for them sacrificially. That's all I'll say there. Show them, number seven, show them believably or convincingly, sincerely. Look at what it says in verse 10. You are witnesses and so is God, how devoutly, that means a passion for God, and uprightly, obedience to God, and blamelessly, that is a reputation with men, we behave, collective historical heirs, over and over and over again, you saw our heart for God, our obedience to God, and our relationship with men. I live the life. This is showing the people you want to influence, the reality, the modeling, and the example that is required. Someone has wrote, written a poem called, I'd Rather See a Sermon. I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather one sh- should walk with me than merely tell the way. 
The eye is a better pupil, more willing than the ear. Fine counsel is confusing, but examples always clear. And best of all, preachers are the men who live their creeds, for to see good put in action is what everybody needs. I can soon learn how to do it if you'll let me see it done. I can watch your hand in action, but your tongue too fast may run. And the lectures you deliver may be, ve- be very wise and true, but I'd rather get my lesson by observing what you do. For I may misunderstand you and the high advice you give, but there is no misunderstanding how you act and how you live. Paul said, you were witnesses. You saw me live it. My heart for God, my obedience to God, and my relationship with men. Show them, those you want to influence, convincingly, authentically, what a real Christian is and does. Let me finally just note these, and I'll close with verse 11. There are three verbs here. The triad of tools that a father uses. I'll highlight them. He says, just as you know, verse 11, how we were exhorting. Exhorting means to call someone to where you are. Para kaleo, kaleo to call, para alongside. It means you're out in front of them, leading them, showing them, and inviting them to come. Come with me. I'm somewhere inviting you to come. This word can be comfort, but the next word is, so it's not that. It's over half the time used as challenging someone. Challenge them by your example, by your behavior, and invite them. Come on, do this with me. Let's read the Bible together. Let's pray together. Let's do ministry together. Come with me. That's the first tool. That would be number eight. Lead them convincingly and believably. Number nine, encourage them. This word means to comfort them with words. Look, it's not easy to live life or be a Christian. Sometimes you get discouraged. This word means to encourage them so they don't quit and comfort them so they don't despair. And then finally, number 10, implore each one of them as a father would his own child. The word implore is convince them persuasively. It's the word for martyr, martyruamai, you hear it in it. It means to bear witness and to testify, and it means to testify out of personal experience where you persuade. Persuade them because you did it right, persuade them because you didn't do it right. It means with passion to persuade them personally from your life to say, hey, do this, this works, don't do this, this will harm you. These are tools that say, I have lived life, and I want to share the benefit of that with you. I want to tell you so that you experience what you can experience or you don't experience what may harm or hurt you. Agents of influence, maximum impact, tools, verse 12, so that they can walk in a manner worthy. Wouldn't you like to be able to say at the end of your days, my life mattered, and there's proof of it. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for the power of it. I pray that you will use it to inspire influence in this place, in this church, among these people to the end that they can celebrate one day seeing the fruit of their labor, the fruit of their life, the fruit of their influence. God, none of us is perfect, but we have the power by your spirit to make a difference, a life-changing difference in the lives of those that matter the most to us, in the things that matter the most. You're the greatest and the best, and I thank you for our time today. In Jesus' name, amen.